doing, Scott? Hey, Dan. How are you? Really good. Cover, recovering from COVID, actually, but uh, feeling pretty, pretty close to normal. Well, and I'm really glad to hear that you are. And it's so intriguing because our two books today are all about COVID. So the first book is a book called The Premonition by Michael Lewis. The second book is called Pandemia, and it's by New York Times reporter Alex Berenson. And Dan, I think these two books, interestingly, reflect much of the controversy and debate. They sort of reflect the two larger trends that our country has evinced and the people have been divided along for the last two, two and a half years. Yeah, I would agree. And, you know, I have in the past six weeks or however long it's been, I, you know, go back and forth between these books. And it's kind of like being on a roller coaster. It is. And I also know that the more I read, because they do, and they're, they're very different books. And I want to say that the more I read, the more in-depth I get into all the questions about COVID, about infection rates, about vaccines, et cetera, the less I feel like I understand very well. I couldn't agree more. I mean, they're both very well written. Both of these, these men are experienced writers. They, they tell stories. They have a chronology that makes sense. They're, they're really excellent reads. And I feel like going back and forth, and the more I get into each book, the more confused I am. Well, especially um, if you chase down the references that they use and start looking in depth. I don't see either of these authors as purposefully manipulating the facts to support their position. But as you say, they do embed them in a very compelling narrative. Michael Lewis's book really talks about and tells the story of the people who were gathering long before the outbreak of COVID-19 to develop pandemic-related policy, starting curiously with George Bush, the second Bush. Who, I think it was his, I don't know if it was his Homeland Security Secretary, who had read a, a book about the Spanish flu epidemic in 1918 and basically handed Bush the book and said, you got to read this. And I think Bush just ate it up over a weekend and came in on Monday and said, what are we doing about this? What's our plan? Exactly. And, and so that set in motion a series of events with a number of different people who didn't, didn't know each other, but came together and they were all close to obsessed about how an infection could really take over a country and you know, what we were going to do about it. Hmm. So this agency got created Department of Pandemic Planning <laughs> and over, I think it started in like 2005 and over a, a period of years, 
a kind of, it was a small group, but of kind of unregulated folks came up with a plan for how the United States was going to manage a pandemic. Mm. I, I was going to add to that, Dan, one thing to think about as, as, you, as, you, as you read through this book and consider the plan that they eventually did develop, and much of which eventually was ignored in COVID management policy, was that means the science that we heard so much about during the two years of the pandemic dates back to hmm, 2005 with a bunch of people working in disparate places and connecting with each other via email and conference calls. So it wasn't that old, neither was it very deep. Right. And they were mostly physicians or, or people with medical training. And COVID-19 came around in late 2019 and early 2020. They got on the hot seat. All this work that they had been doing finally came, became a usefulness for it. What they didn't anticipate was the culture. I, I think you said it best when they, they, they treated Americans like chairs. You create this amount of distance between these people. You put a, a, a seat cover over the chair. You isolate the chairs in their homes. The, you they, pay the chairs to stay there. Yeah, exactly. And they thought this is this is wartime mentality. This is like World War II, and we're fighting an enemy just the same way. They didn't have any kind of plan for how to implement it in a in a complex culture like the United States. And what you can certainly say is all of the smart people, as Mark uh, Michael Lewis constantly refers to these people who were ignored. They had models of how viruses acted if people weren't involved. And the, the person that gets a lot of coverage and who is now sort of becoming a bit of a media darling is Charity Dean. But her whole idea, how she talked about the human aspect of implementation was to appeal to the patriotism of these folks, sort of like World War II, we'd, we'd, we'd be fighting together a common enemy or to use law enforcement. Those were her two sort of ideas. And the, the minute I heard this, I thought, first off, patriotism is much easier to see in World War II in retrospect than at the time. Lots of fighting took place about whether we should have gotten into the war. The British were begging for arms. There was lots and lots of disagreement here about, about the policy. It took us quite a while. I mean, it wasn't like a, a quick decision. Oh, we got to go in. And I guess the point is, if there's one major thing that's caused disruption here is for me, and something I said from the earliest days of the pandemic, where are the human factors people in this plan? Where are they? Where are the psychologists, the anthropologists, the sociologists, the social psychologists? Yeah. Or even some kind of analysis of what happens when you close schools. What are the, the unintended consequences of kids not going to school? Or I was thinking about this. I, because I, th I think Michael Lewis mentions it somewhere that you may sequester them at home, but you know, I'm the father of a teenage, a current teenager. I couldn't keep my son in his room all day. He's got a car. So if they're not going to get together in school, they're going to get together somewhere. So just mm -hmm. some kind of a deeper analysis of the, the pandemic planning. 
And we are now seeing, again, from mental health perspective, the impact of those policies. So we have a significant increase in adolescent suicides. It's interesting that that particular group were harmed by COVID mitigation policy, as well as the effects of, of COVID in families that had a loved one die, uh, et cetera. We're also seeing an incredible increase amongst this demographic in crime. So these are clearly consequences, human factor issues that were not clearly articulated. Management of the virus is one thing, management of people is another. Pandemia is a very different book, although, as you say, equally well-written. Instead of telling a story of others, Pandemia is really a story about Alex Berenson. Right. And reviews of the book have been critical that he's in essence telling the story of COVID through his experience and his ideas. And what he was doing was asking lots of questions about the various policies, lockdowns, death rates, the building of temporary hospitals, even questions about the potency and efficacy of, and side effects of vaccines. Yeah, and he was vilified and pilloried for his opinion. He was kicked off of Twitter. He's still off of Twitter. The Atlantic and, Magazine called him the, the pandemic's wrongest man. And it's such a shame because we, we talk about following the science and in essence, sometimes sort of blindly following what scientists say, especially in the media. And as we know, our media tends to glorify people with extreme opinion. But the scientific method has always been based on legitimate debate with opposing viewpoints. A podcast that you referred me to that Michael Lewis did that followed up, and we'll put the links down here in the description of the video, but that Michael Lewis conducted really highlighted the role of legacy and social media in the polarization that took place in our country. Primarily, it seems, not conspiratorially, but primarily because they tended to get people who would attract viewers. And the more polarizing they were, the more articulate they were in their particular position, the, the more likely they were to get airtime. And he also goes on to say the scientific voice of uncertainty, of humility, of questioning, which in many ways Alex Berenson exemplifies, that just did not appear in the media narrative. In fact, what you saw typically was absolutely certain statements from media experts on one side or other. Another thing the media did was they, they that both of the authors highlight was counted meaningless milestones. So every day it would tell us 10,000 more infections, 20,000, 30,000, 500,000 dead. As if those that one number was 499, 999,000 irrelevant the day before. These kinds of things gave rise to a great deal of fear. And in fact, if you, if you trust both Lewis and Berenson, they make the point that 
fear was in fact the primary tactic used by governments implementing the mitigation policy. And the impact of that on mental health has also been significant. It, it seems as though we could do better work. Yeah, and I think it, it does get down to, to trust of government. If we look at Lewis, we find somebody who has a, from, he's coming at it from a perspective that there are, are some really good people in the government, which is not, there's no question about that. And then you look at Berenson who says, well, they may be good people and they, and they probably are good people and they're probably smart, but they have a bias that, and they're not willing to debate about a policy. Whenever I hear therapists talk about trust, I usually say trust is, is not a process. Trust is an outcome. The question is, what inspires trust? And in all of this, it seems to me that part of what was missing in the human factors approach was facilitating conversations between people with different ideas and opinions, which is the essence of science. The fact that Eunidas, yeah. who became famous for his failed predictions, was publishing those predictions is not the issue in many ways. The issue was that in the public's mind, the opinions were presented as polar opposites and unreconcilable. Either opposites. or. Either or. Science is the process of reconciling disparate data uh, to, to uncover what's a more accurate representation of reality. And as we started this particular review, Dan, I'm not sure we're any closer to reality, but I think it perhaps is more available to us when we're able to say, we don't know. I would agree with you. I, I, I guess I also might want to add that based on my experience of being fully embedded in American culture, seems like people are kind of moving on from the COVID pandemic. I don't know a lot of people right now who are signing up for booster shots. I was fully vaccinated and boosted and then I got COVID a few weeks ago. I'm familiar with big gatherings and weddings and things just happening. And so I think in some ways, what, what he talks about in this book is kind of almost coming to fruition. I don't know where it's going to lead us as far as deaths and new vaccines and, and, and such, but it, it feels like we're kind of moving on. It's so interesting to hear you say that, Dan. And let me just say that maybe, because my sense is that like many traumatic events, we will be dealing with the consequences of what's happened for a generation or more. I, I, I couldn't agree more. We're, we're moving on, but we're carrying the burden of the last few years with us. Yeah. And, and there'll be unintended consequences, I'm sure. So should people read these books? I think they should. Having lived through it, I think it really will put some good perspective on the last few years. You kind of, the, this in, in a way, because of the historical chronology 
and this because of the stories of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So, And maybe one book we need to read in the future is uh, one that I mentioned to you called I Never Thought of It That Way by Monica Guzman. There's a quote in a review of this particular book that I think speaks volumes. Uh, uh, the person says, rejecting someone for their class, race, or sexual orientation remains taboo. But ditching people or doxing, threatening, or shaming them for their political beliefs, it's not only acceptable, it's the ultimate in virtue signaling. What we need going forward, it seems to me, is to learn how to have conversations to bridge that yeah. gap, reaching out and asking, tell me more about what your position is. Yeah, but, absolutely. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Scott.